Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. God has an overall prophetic program that we often subdivide into three distinct plans. A plan for Israel, a plan for the church, and a plan for the Gentile nations. All three of which center around the Jewish people. Israel is truly God's timepiece of history and prophecy. And as you know, on our program, we have broadcast partners that we talk to as we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And if God has a plan for the Jewish people, these are the nations that are involved in that plan in the future. Rick, we've got a lot to cover today. Our broadcast partners, Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, a new partner, Yael Kalashir. Yael is the daughter of Menno Kalashir, the pastor in the city of Jerusalem that we often talk to. And of course, Paul Scharf will come here to help us understand what is taking place for Israel in the future. Rick, we've got a lot to cover, so let's get started with our first, Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have our broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman, with us. He is the man that we go to uh, for geopolitical affairs. He's an author and an analyst. He's written many books. He's got his own website. If you want to find out more about him, find out about his books, his blogs, what he's got going on, go to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thanks for joining us. A pleasure to be with you, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Ken, we've got all kinds of things to get to. So we'll start with this trial that Israel was put on, the uh, ICJ. Could you tell us a little bit about it? We talked about it last week on the program. Could you tell us what the conclusion was? Well, the International Court of Justice in The Hague, uh, which is a subsidiary of the United Nations, issued ahead of time a, a ruling against Israel saying that Israel should beware carrying out acts in the future that could be construed as genocide against the Palestinian people. Now, this is not the outright condemnation or the demand that Israel stop the war in Gaza that many of Israel's opponents had hoped for, that South Africa had hoped for. Nevertheless, it is very significant. In addition, it's particularly obscene as today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day and this ruling which was issued on Friday the day before International Holocaust uh, Remembrance Day really vitiates the term Holocaust of its real meaning. We know what the Holocaust is. We know about the massacre of six million Jews in Europe, Hitler's attempt to wipe them out in Europe to make Europe Judenrein. The Palestinians, Hamas, want to do exactly the same thing. This international uh, criminal uh, court judgment really turns the world upside down, Rick. The ones who are truly threatening genocide are the Hamas murderers, while Israel is doing its very best at great expense in lives and uh, treasure to save the lives of civilians in Gaza. Uh, so for the International Criminal Court to uh, issue even the slightest declarative condemnation of Israel is to me particularly obscene. Well, I certainly agree with you there, Ken. And as we continue on with this subject, you have written a paper for the American First Policy Institute, and the paper is entitled Israel's War of Survival and the End of the Two-State Solution, covering some of the topics that you just brought up. If you could, could you tell us about your association with this organization and about the paper itself? Well, uh, I've been brought in as a senior fellow at the America First Policy Institute, which has been around for about a year and a half or so. It is a large conservative think tank in Washington, D.C., putting out policies that support really what was the Trump agenda uh, during his presidency, his first term, and uh, laying the groundwork for a second term of a conservative America first 
uh, president. Of course, we all know who we think that president's going to be. This paper really was inspired by my trip to Israel uh, after the October 7th massacre, my interaction with various Israeli officials and private citizens. And I really came back from that trip with a powerful impression that things have changed dramatically in Israel. We've seen uh, in the past, whenever Israel has conducted peace talks with the Palestinians or its Arabs neighbors, there has always been a kind of fervor and enthusiasm for what's going to happen next. I, I remember in the Oslo Accords in 1993 and 1994, when Arafat first came to Gaza, there was hope that they really could achieve a peace with the Palestinians. And then, of course, the terror attacks began, the suicide bombers began, and Israel had to erect the wall, which they called the Oslo Wall. Well, today, uh, despite the Abraham Accords, this attack on October 7th, the, the Palestinians really crossed a Rubicon, and they finally made all Israeli politicians, I think, with, with very few exceptions, realize that there is no peace possible with a Palestinian state. There cannot be a two-state solution. Must the Palestinians find some form of self-government? Of course they must. Uh, and the Israelis, I'm sure, will help them to do so. But they cannot arrogate unto themselves the attributes of a state, whether it be a demilitarized state, even with a police force, as you have in the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, that is over and done with. And that is a very new development. And it's one that we can see President Biden is struggling with every day. Uh, and every time he talks to Prime Minister Netanyahu, he's trying to figure out where the Israelis are going on this. But there is not going to be a Palestinian state in any time that I can see in the near future. If you are interested in reading this paper, you can go to our website at prophecytoday.com. We will provide a link to this, but it's certainly worth your time to read. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Middle East when we talk with Dave Dolan in the next segment. But let's go ahead and move on around the world. There has been a situation in the Taiwan Strait where the, the U.S. military has been moving some ships in, and that has made China very unhappy. Could you tell us about that? Well, the communist Chinese are always unhappy when the U.S. sends our naval ships through the Strait of Taiwan. Now, we say that uh, we have every right in the world to do so. It is an international maritime corridor, and the United States uh, has historically, for generations, seen one of its national security interests to defend maritime security around the world for the free passage of goods from China to Europe to the United States and in reverse. So for the Chinese to complain when the USS Finn, which is an Arleigh Burke cruiser, go, sails through the Taiwan Strait is a bit rich in my book because we're really defending China's ability to trade with the rest of the world. But that's what they do. They complain about it and they say, we're going to take actions, perhaps, you know, firing missiles off the north of Taiwan or something like that. It's entirely feasible and it's the kind of thing that the Chinese do. Well, Ken, for our final couple of questions here, I'm going to move to what may seem like a more domestic policy for those that are here uh, in the States. But I think these domestic policies are going to have geopolitical implications. And the first question is, as we look at former President Trump on the heels of uh, two victories in the first two GOP primaries, there are those around the world starting to look at what it may be like for a second term for President Trump. And of course, he was certainly at odds with NATO, and NATO is now embroiled in their conflict with Russia. Could you let me know if we are going to kind of jump ahead and look at a future Trump presidency? What is it going to look like for the United States relation with NATO? Well, the European uh, allies, such as they are, are very worried. And they're worried because Trump told them clearly during his first term that they are going to have to pony up 
if they want to keep the United States in NATO and the United States continuing to guarantee the security of the European countries, because that's what this is all about. Europe has been getting a free ride for its own security for generations. President Trump said, enough is enough. It's time that you start meeting your goals. I still remember during the 1980s when it was 3% of uh, gross national product to be spent on defense, and that was also considered to be small. It was the Cold War. The U.S. was spending over 6% of our GDP. Now that uh, spending requirement is 2% of GDP for NATO members, and only a handful meet it. The biggest countries in NATO, Germany, France, Britain, are not meeting that 2% goal. So you hear a lot of uh, European so-called allies now wondering, tearing their hair, is Trump going to pull America out of NATO? I don't think Trump will do that. What I think he will do is uh, scare the nonsense out of the Europeans, uh, just as he did the first time, by threatening to pull the U.S. out of NATO and then requiring that they step up their defense contributions, because that's what this is really all about. Europe has got to start paying for its own defense and not freeloading off of the American taxpayer. Well, Ken, as we continue to look at this situation, we know that 2024 is an election year. So we're going to be talking about the election, the possible reemergence of President Trump and these campaign issues. One final question for you. And I do believe that, that this has a geopolitical impact. The border issue, this is one of the areas where President Biden has seemingly had a lot of trouble and a lot of failures during his administration. And our borders here in the United States, especially in the South, are very porous and a lot of people are coming in. This is a security issue. This is potentially a geopolitical issue, and it's certainly going to be an issue in the campaign. I just wanted to get your thoughts on it as we look at this issue in 2024. Well, here's here's an interesting take on this, uh, Rick. I was listening to Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, on Friday talk about how uh, Republicans were making essentially a mountain out of the molehill. There's no problem at the border whatsoever. And Republicans are just ginning this up for political purposes. You mentioned in your setup to this question, Rick, that for Biden, this was a big failure. I actually think this is the signature Biden policy. Opening our borders to an invasion of 10 million illegal aliens, because that's how many have crossed so far, is Biden's signature policy. This is what he sought to do. Uh, he's not as stupid as we think he is sometimes. Uh, this was purposeful uh, when he dismantled the stay in Mexico po policy and he basically opened up the border to anybody who wanted to come. When we saw the caravans coming up through Mexico, what did Biden do? He told the Border Patrol to stand down and just register these people, let them come on in, give them a court date five, six, seven days in the future. And by that point, who knows where they're going to be or what's going to happen? So I think Biden has done this purposefully. I think he's going to pay a big price for this uh, at uh, on Election Day in November. And frankly, I think any Democrat, if Biden is not the nominee, any Democrat who is the nominee is going to pay a big price for this purposeful policy to open our borders to an invasion of people who do not necessarily want to become Americans or love the American way. Ken Timmerman reporting on not only geopolitical issues, but issues here that are affecting us in the United States, issues that we're going to be talking about for the next however many months it is, nine months before the election. Ken, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you for giving us your insight, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick. It's always a pleasure. God bless. Great job as always, Ken. we got to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan with our Middle East News Update as we focus on the nation of Israel. God's timepiece of history and prophecy, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend.
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The U.S. struck three bases belonging to Iranian-backed militia in Iraq on Wednesday, a move the Iraqi government called reckless escalation. The strikes follow countless attacks on U.S. military personnel since October and an Iranian airstrike in Kurdistan on January 17. Edwin with Heart for Iran says, Iran is attempting to showcase its military strength and signal to United States, to Israel, and even to Arab allies, its readiness to confront external threats. Heart for Iran furthers the Great Commission in Iran through media and technology. Pray their messages will encourage and reassure believers in Iran. Please pray for the stability in the region and peace for the Church of God as she's carrying out the kingdom's mission. And MENA Leadership Center is expanding their own online services and launching a new opportunity for their partners. Most of their current coursework is live training online. However, ministry leaders can have trouble attending live courses, so MLC is preparing to launch an on-demand program. Dr. Jen Murph with MLC says, This is where we are going to do high-quality, production-quality video content that doesn't just, it's not a talking head, but it's a moment of experiencing our coursework, and then it's also through relationship. You're going to feel like you know your instructor as well as the material. Plus, MLC is launching a new platform called Powered by MLC. This platform will host on-demand courses from trusted partners. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener-supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. And together, the Great Commission happens. Look for links at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is the portion of our program that we call the Middle East News Update. We look at news coming out of Israel, in particular, the Middle East in general. To do that, we have our good friend, journalist Dave Dolan with us. Dave, as always, thank you for taking the time to be with us. And Rick, as always, you're welcome. Well, David, always lots of news coming out of the Middle East right now, and we continue on with the Israel-Hamas war. So many things taking place right there in Israel. Can you give us an update on the latest? Well, of course, on the ground, the fighting continues in Gaza, especially in the south part of the country, where we tragically had that horrible incident earlier in the week where 21 Israeli soldiers were killed. They were uh, actually in the process of laying down booby traps to take out two buildings right next to the Gaza fence with Israel that were used as staging grounds uh, during the October 7th massacre. And a Palestinian anti-tank missile hit a tank nearby, set it on fire, and that set the explosive charges off. 21 soldiers killed in that. We had another uh, three killed that same day, and then on Thursday, another soldier killed 220 now, Rick, in total in the war since the ground incursion. Now, since October 7th, it's 557 total because, of course, many were killed on the actual day of the invasion, the attack, defending. And um, we had more action in the north, Hezbollah again firing rockets and missiles at Israel, uh, claiming on Thursday it was using a new Iranian-supplied uh, anti-tank guided wire missile that actually has a camera on it and can curve 
so it can spot hidden tanks and that sort of thing. The Israelis say actually they've been using that weapon since the beginning of the fighting uh, right after October 7th, but uh, it's an upgrade to what Iran has provided them in the past. And we had, of course, more action down in the Red Sea, more Houthi attacks upon uh, Western shipping and more U.S. and British strikes against them. And we had a report that China is trying to get the uh, Iranian regime to put some pressure on the Houthis to stop these attacks because Chinese shipping is being affected as well. They sell a lot of products to Europe that go through the Red Sea normally. They're having to divert. So that's what's happening on the ground. And then we had the uh, world uh, court ruling on Friday, Rick, which uh, surprised many people. Fifteen of the 17 judges voted against the South African claim that Israel was committing genocide in Gaza. Uh, They did lecture Israel, the head of the court, for about 35 minutes and urged it to take all measures to prevent genocide, uh, et cetera. Well, the Israelis responded, Prime Minister Netanyahu, saying we are not committing genocide at all. He said the South African position and those that support it is an attempt to deny Israel the right to defend itself. He called that blatant discrimination against the Jewish state, which the judges justly rejected, he said. He added this is a war against Hamas terrorists, not Palestinian civilians. And uh, he said, we're doing everything to keep the civilians out of harm's way. And by the way, that comes as the Palestinian Authority run by Hamas, the health ministry, claimed that 26,000 Palestinians have been killed since the beginning of the war. The Israelis believe that's grossly exaggerated. It's maybe 15,000. And that's still a lot, but nobody mentions, you hardly ever hear it on the news, most of those are Hamas and Islamic Jihad fighters. They're including their fighters that are killed in the action as part of this overall toll of Palestinians. So it's maybe five or six civilians. That's sad. That's terrible. But again, this is a war started by Hamas, not by Israel. And what is Vladimir Putin doing in Ukraine and others killing civilians deliberately, and nobody seems to be saying a word. Certainly not. Well, David, as we continue to follow up on the stories that you just gave us, let's talk about that International Court of Justice verdict. Of course, the case was brought forward by South Africa, and we have talked about it on this program before, that many claim that following in the uh, kind of in the history of South Africa, that Israel is an apartheid state. Can you talk a little bit about why they would claim Israel is an apartheid state and then give us the reality of the situation? Well, Rick, it really is an upside-down world when South Africa, uh, you know, thousands of miles south of Israel, is taking up this claim. But yes, that has been the charge against Israel for many decades now, that it is an apartheid state. I covered the uh, battle in South Africa over apartheid. I was in Israel at the time, but it was very much part of the news, and I worked for a TV network that uh, wanted our reactions to it. Apartheid is, of course, a deliberate separation of people into various groups and strong discrimination against one of those groups by the majority or the dominant group. That isn't what's happening in Israel. Israel doesn't have signs like South Africa did that blacks must not enter this restaurant. They must sit at the back of the bus. They must do this and that. 
Uh, Israel has all of its road signs in Hebrew and Arabic, which is the second official language of Israel. There are four uh, Arab political parties in the parliament, in the Knesset. Uh, Arabs can work anywhere. They can travel anywhere. Now, those are Israeli Arabs, but the Palestinians, they have less rights but in the areas they control, the Palestinian Authority controls most of the population, the Arab population of uh, Judea and Samaria and the big cities there, Nablus and Ramallah and the other cities, Bethlehem. And uh, they're ruling the place. They have their own police forces. They have their own uh, travel forces, uh, everything about it, their own communication systems, their own water systems, their own road crews, etc. So... It's just a ridiculous charge, but it's an emotional charge. And, of course, it goes back to the root charge, which is that these Jews are interlopers that came from other places. They had no historical connection to uh, the biblical Holy Land, which is, of course, absurd uh, that they're, uh, you know, invaders and, uh, and oppressors and all this sort of thing. Well, of course, there was a genocide committed. There were several, frankly, but in the last century, and one was, of course, Adolf Hitler's attempt, and he carried it out uh, to a large degree. A third of world Jewry was killed in a five-year period of time, and it was a, a deliberate attempt to kill people. Israel is certainly not doing that. As I said, on October 7th, that was a holiday, the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. They were lying in bed on a Shabbat morning, a Saturday morning, expecting a quiet day. They weren't thinking about invading Gaza or oppressing Palestinians or killing anyone. And then this horrendous massacre took place by a group that claims its goal is wiping out Israel entirely, wiping all the Jews off the face of the land there. So that is true apartheid. That is true genocide. Well, David, as we have looked at this situation, many people are talking about genocide. You have mentioned the fact that the Holocaust was a true genocide as they look at the Nazis killing Jewish people just because of their Jewish race. And this situation does not match that one. In fact, October 7th created a need for security for Israel. And essentially what is going on in Gaza right now is Israel trying to create a future where they can live without the threat of what happened with Hamas, and that may entail getting rid of Hamas, but it certainly entails putting up security barriers. As we look at this situation, is a ceasefire in the future? Is the ceasefire in the best interest? And how much longer do you think Israel will be involved in Gaza? Well, Rick, we did have reports late this week that the talks to possibly get the uh, release of the remaining 100-plus Israeli hostages uh, are ongoing. Qatar's involved. Uh, President Biden spoke with the emir of Qatar on Friday, it was said, about this. Uh, the proposal would be for a two-month uh, ceasefire and a gradual release during that time of all of the remaining hostages. There's a lot of pressure on Netanyahu from his own people to agree to such a thing because, of course, getting the hostages back is everybody's uh, goal. And the uh, international court did call for the release of those hostages. I have to be fair and say that. But it's going to be difficult because, of course, it means releasing uh, many, many more Palestinian prisoners. And these are people that were arrested, that were tried, that are being held because of uh, acts they committed, mostly terror attacks, and to release them in exchange for mostly civilian prisoners being held in Gaza by the 
Palestinians, elderly, uh, many women still, and some uh, children still. Uh, it just seems absurd to many people. But, of course, uh, getting those hostages back is very important, Rick, and we'll see if that uh, leads to anything. Dave Dolan reporting on the situation in Israel. Dave, as you know, the Bible says that in the end times, the world will be focused on that area of the world, specifically Jerusalem, specifically the Temple Mount, but the Middle East, Israel, the Jewish people, as they have a plan and a role to play in the future. David, we appreciate you, as always, helping us to realize how this stage is being set for what's going to take place in the future. We appreciate your insight, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Well, we have that bright light at the end of the tunnel, Rick, and God bless. Thank you. Great job as always, David. And remember, we focus on the Jewish people. One, so that you can pray for them and that God will protect them in these times and to understand where we are in Bible prophecy. We're going to take a break right now on Prophecy Today, but when we return, we will have a special guest, Yael Kalashir, a missionary in Israel. We'll talk about her experiences on October 7th, and we'll also have Paul Scharf, Dr. DeYoung in the Legacy Series, and a look at the book. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Houthi militants in Yemen promise revenge following targeted overnight airstrikes by Western forces. Since November, the Houthis have launched dozens of attacks on tankers traveling through the Red Sea. Trey Hulsey, a consultant to Middle East Ministries, says the conflict makes life increasingly difficult in Yemen. Corruption is widespread, yet hope remains. The body of Christ is not only growing, it's thriving. Ask the Lord to give Christian leaders wisdom to navigate Yemen's complex environment. Meanwhile, December brought a lot of rain to Haiti, and with it, a significant amount of flooding due to the amount of trash littering the streets. For Haiti with Love made it part of their mission to help with cleanup efforts. They also bring food to people at their houses when they aren't able to get to the market due to flooding, spreading the gospel as they do. Pray for strength, wisdom, and courage so believers can continue being the hands and feet of Christ. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Remember, I started off the program by saying Israel is truly God's timepiece of history and prophecy. Well, you know, in connection with Israel, God's sovereign purpose is accomplished through the eternal conditional covenants God made with the Jewish people, the Abrahamic, the land, the Davidic, the new covenant. But how does God's program in connection with the church relate to Israel? Paul taught that the spiritual blessings that the church enjoys are actually Jewish spiritual blessings which come from the Jewish covenants. Therefore, Gentiles are partakers of these spiritual blessings of the Jewish covenant. What about if you're part of the church and you live in Israel? You know, we've talked to Minno Kalos here in the past, and he's a pastor that beginning in 1991, three days after the Gulf War started, the first Gulf War, and the church is thriving today. On the program, Rick, today we get to have the opportunity to talk to Yael. Now, this is a personal conversation. Uh, we want to find out about Yael, but what happened? What in the life of a family in Jerusalem that belongs to a church, what happened on that day of October 7th and what has gone forward? 
Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have a good friend of yours with us right now, Yael Kalashir. She is Menno Kalashir's daughter, a pastor that many of you are familiar with. We have him on the program quite often, but this, I believe, is the first time Yael has been on. Yael, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I wanted to get your perspective on it. October 7th is what I'm talking about. And, and of course, your grandfather, he was a Holocaust survivor, came to Israel in the 40s and was uh, instrumental there in the War of Independence. And then, uh, of course, 1967, uh, the Six-Day War, 73, the Yom Kippur. Of course, these were before your time. But you grew up listening and learning about those stories. But nothing, I'm sure, can compare to what happened on October 7th. Things changed. Things changed in Israel, it changed for many uh, young people like yourself in Israel. If you could tell us a little bit about how, when you found out about October 7th, what it was like there in Israel and what your experience was. Yeah. Um, so Saturday morning, I know most of you know that Saturdays is our church day. So um, I'm staying with my parents. I'm staying with my parents right now as I'm traveling a lot. And so uh, I was here. We 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 woke up. I woke up early. I was on the phone with a friend from the states, and wasn't aware at all of anything until it was around nine ish. And then we all sort of started converging and and getting together before uh, heading out to church. And uh, my dad was in Italy at the time, and my mom all of a sudden walked by and she said, "Yael, I don't think." I don't think it's going to be church today. And hmm. you have to understand you've, I'm, I'm pretty sure if you've mentioned my grandpa, you mentioned my dad and you're, you're laughing. There, there's no such thing as no, hmm. we might not have church today unless it's Yom Kippur and it's, it falls on a Saturday. There's no, nothing in my life. I can remember that has made us not go to church, not even during COVID. We hmm. still had church. It was obviously in a different way, but the church was never close. And so this was the first time in my life that I heard that. And so I was really taken aback. I was like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> and I thought she was not joking, but I realized something's going on. But I, but, you know, piqued my interest, obviously. And she said, we need to turn on the TV. And I thought that can't be good. Mm -hmm. So then we did. And I think from that moment until... I don't know. I guess the TV was on for the next four days straight or something. Mm -hmm. It was my mom and me and my sister and her husband. We were all in the in the house at the same time, and we were just glued. We would we could not believe our eyes. We could not believe what was unfolding. We could not believe the rising numbers on the bottom of the screen. We could not believe the amount of towns that were mentioned at the side of the screen for the you know rocket uh, alerts. We, we didn't talk to each other because there were, there were no words. We were in shock, honestly. And the reason we canceled church that day is because we had sirens go off in Jerusalem about five times. We had to go. We had to run to the shelter to make sure, you know, that we were safe. And together with us, all the other people at the building ran as well. So this was very, very surreal and obviously a very negative way. And I think... As things were unfolding, we realized that both uh, my sister and my brother were going to be called to reserves because that's, you know, we, we you kind of get used to the situation here and you know that if something, if things get really bad, then immediately there's a massive call to reserves. And I guess you mentioned before my grandpa fighting in the different wars in 67 and 73, and that's basically the same thing. As soon as the sirens went off, 
people were called to reserves as fast as fast as the military was able to recruit them. And that's what happened with my brother and my sister. So at the same time that we were all in shock of everything that happened, we were we didn't know like the uncertainty of what was going to happen to our to my siblings. That was that was just another wave of fear or of disbelief of you know trying to process all of these things at the same time. And I remember at some point we all sat around the dining table and no one had any appetite for breakfast. And we all had tears in our eyes, tears of shock, mm -hmm. tears of grief, tears of sorrow, tears of overwhelming feelings. And Christian, my, my uh, brother-in-law, he said, I think we should, we should pray. And so, and so we did. And the Lord just put on my heart to also read Second Chronicles, the the account, I think Second Chronicles twenty, the account about King Jehoshaphat and how the nations rose against Israel yet again, uh, rose against the people of Israel. And really, what happened in that account is uh, the people of Israel converged in Judah and they called unto the Lord and they fasted and they prayed and the Lord delivered them. And that was. I, I wish I can say that it filled us with faith and we burst forth with worship and praise, but um, I think it was the right call to declare God's truth, God's mm. word in that moment, and to have something to hold on to in the face of everything that our eyes and ears saw and heard that day. Well, yeah, listening to you tell that story certainly reminds us here of 9-11 and everybody in America remembers where they were that day. But the fact that as you knew your brother was going to be going to war, you knew that your family was going to be involved in what was going to have to take place after those terrible attacks on October 7th. This has been something that your country has responded to, that your community, your family, your church has responded to. If you could tell us a little bit about that response, what was that like for your church, your family, your community to respond to these attacks? Well, I can tell you about the me personally. I was supposed to fly out on the on October twelfth to to have the interview with the Friends of Israel board in New Jersey. And there was something in me that knew that I cannot miss the the flight. Mm. Um, not because I needed to be in that interview, although I did, but there's something in me that realized my reserve duty is not going to be in the military. It's going to be on behalf of my country outside of my country. And so I fought long and hard to, to manage to secure the last seat available mm. on the last flight that I could find from Tel Aviv. Uh, through Athens and Vienna and Frankfurt, and then finally to New Jersey. And I've stayed there for the next three months, going to churches, going to conferences, uh, speaking about Israel, being extremely active online, on social media, and doing everything that I can to rally the church, not to support our political government, mm -hmm. but to understand that the word of God is being fulfilled in front of our very eyes. Mm. And if we don't rally together, if we don't stand together, not behind the state of Israel, but the, behind the people of Israel, because no matter how we look at it, no matter what we think about it, that's what God's word says. And that's the choice that he made. And I can't, I, I don't have a say in it. <laughs> um, 
but if <laughs> if I love what he loves, then my heart will beat in the same way that his heart beats. And that's I I want to believe that this is the the heart's desire of every Christian, of every born again Christian that loves Jesus, that loves the Lord, that loves God. Um to love what he loves, to cry for what he cries, to grieve for what he grieves. And um, and right now, <laughs> the people of Israel uh, are in the center of an unprecedented rise in anti-Semitism, hatred, and everything that we've seen 80 years ago. And honestly, I could not believe my eyes when I saw the same things that I heard from my grandpa when I was growing up. I just could not believe that in my lifetime we'll be facing the same thing. And back then it was, it felt at least uh, from what I remember hearing and learning about in school, it was in Europe. It wasn't worldwide, but because of social media today, it's become worldwide. So it's, it feels far worse in a way. Um, so that's, that's what I've taken on myself to try as much as I can to share the truth, share the word of God been recording different interviews with my dad, putting them on, on social media, on Instagram and Facebook and explaining things, explaining definitions, anti-Semitism and what the Bible says about this and that. And just to give a perspective from us here in Israel. And uh, so that was what I was doing. And then obviously the church has been doing tirelessly all the time. They've been uh, funneling funds, funds that they've had, funds that they've received to help different churches throughout the country. They've been helping students in, and soldiers and the families of soldiers. They've been buying equipment. You know, it's not that the military does not have the equipment that it needs, but sometimes there's hierarchy of who needs it first. And, and if you're not first in line, it's going to take some time until you get different things. And so if you're for my, for example, my sister up in the north, they needed, uh, they needed. I call them onesies. Obviously, they're not onesies, but you know, <laughs> full suits for uh -huh. winter, and um, and they have to be military grade and all that, and they just cost a fortune. So the the military has them, but they would send them to the front line soldiers for obvious reasons. And so my sister's not front line; they're the logistics that support the front line. And so she just she called the church and she's like, hey can you send us 120 units because my soldiers, they, they just don't have them. And it's going to be so long until they get them that they're going to freeze to death till then. So things like that, obviously we have uh, good chains uh, where, where the information is passed on and, and gets to, to my dad and the, the other leadership uh, people in the church. And they've been for the last hundred and what is it? hundred and two, three days. They've been, tirelessly and endlessly and nonstop giving, serving, preparing food for evacuees. Uh, my mom's been cooking three times a week for hundreds <laughs> of people. Um, and that's just her you know, watch. You know, there are other people in the church that are doing that, uh, hosting people from the north, from the south. And, you know, sometimes you can't send people to the north. So you send funds and they help the people that are there. So there's been a wonderful unprecedented cooperation between the churches here and that's that's one thing that's been extremely beautiful to see how it doesn't matter what denomination doesn't matter what the background is but we're brothers and sisters and right now people are who we need to help and that's what's been going on so that's been a beautiful thing to see 
Well, it certainly is wonderful to see the church and the community coming together in this time of need. Well, I talked to your father not long after the events of October 7th, and he talked about how this may be a chance to share the gospel with the people of Israel. And I know that is something that your church does on a consistent basis throughout the years, but this event might provide a special opportunity. Has there been a chance to share the gospel with the Jewish people following the events of October 7th? I don't have a yes or no answer to that necessarily, but I will say this. There's been a wave of, I, I'm cautious to use the word awakening because I don't want to stir up too many emotions about that, <laughs> but at least openness. I can say openness to the word of God, to the Bible, to the Psalms, to prayer, to be okay to hear about miracles that happened. You hear here and there about former abductees coming on interviews on TV and saying, this was just a miracle. I don't know how this happened. And obviously, we we know who to give the credit to, Mm. but just different things that they could not account for um, in, in how... Bullets missed them, or or they were just overlooked, or or whatever. And so you have you have stories like that, and you have different units that pray together, not in the way that we would pray, probably mostly more rabbinical looking prayers, but but none, nonetheless, you know, it's it's things that have never happened before, not on this scale. Um, there, I've, I've seen, I think, maybe two or three times the Western Wall being packed with more than 100,000 people praying mm. for the release of the hostages. And you, I've only seen this this prayer, this kind of rallying during the high holidays, and especially in Yom Kippur, uh, Day of Atonement. And so to see this, people coming together and under, you know, the banner of prayer, and that is just, it warms, it warms the heart. And can we use that to uh, evangelize or to, to share the gospel? It's, it's very, very fragile. It's very, uh, it's a very vulnerable situation right now. There are many soldiers, many reservists that are believers that are a part of their units. And I'm sure they have a lot of opportunities to talk about their faith, to talk about why they have a hope, why they, why they don't, you know, what do they do with fear or so it's more on a personal level. I think the the fact that there are a, a lot of Christian organizations that send aid and support Maybe right now in these moments, it's not a conversation that many people have about the heart behind it. But I tell you, I I promise when this is over, many, many, many Israelis are going to remember who stood Hmm. beside them, who helped, who assisted, who cared, who prayed, who, who sent aid and support, and even more so, who didn't. And that's one of the reasons why it was it is so important for me to 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 have visited the different churches and to tell the Christians, write to your Jewish friends, ask them how are you doing, offer prayer, offer just the care of, hey, we we stand with Israel. You don't have to put a flag in your backyard. You don't have to put the sticker, you don't have to go with them again, you know, with a Star of David or with a with any kind of uh <laughs> things, you know, bracelet or anything, but just 
support them in that way it means the world right now and those mm-hmm. who do even more and share and you know put the flag and put the signs on even though it might cost them a lot more it's it's a huge 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 uh, support at this time and it, right now it might not be immediately conversational about faith but it will get there i have i have no doubt that it'll get there everythingworship.org and we'll have a link from our website if you'd like to go we'll link to it as well prophecytoday.com and you thank you so much it's been great talking with you and uh, we will continue to pray for you and 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 look forward to supporting you in the future and as your time as a friends of israel missionary i think that's so great thank you so much really appreciate it and thank you for the time it's been a blessing well yael is a good friend you know the next generation should the lord tarry they will be in Israel leading people to the Lord, their ministry, the churches that are going on. Just as Yael's grandfather, Svi, her father, Minnow, Yael, her brother, all of those that are involved in the ministry there. Yes, there's a great witness going forth, and this is a great time to have that witness of what Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, has done for them. Well, when I thought about this, I thought, you know, I needed to get a hold of my good friend, Paul Scharf. Paul, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Jimmy. Great to be with you. So I was just thinking about this as we are looking forward and we're talking about Israel. And Yael alluded to the future and what's ahead for them. So when you look at this, and you've done some uh, speaking on this, conferences, teaching on this, and uh, we'll get your website here in a moment, but uh, how have the events unfolding in Israel since October 7th served to set the stage for future prophetic fulfillment? Well, Jimmy, that's a fascinating question to me, and I think we have to start by saying, obviously, the events of October 7th, or anything that's transpired since, has not been a direct fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, It doesn't tell us when the rapture will occur. There aren't any signs of the rapture. We believe that's imminent. Mm. But I I think that these events certainly are setting the stage for the future fulfillment of prophecy during the tribulation, the seven-year period which takes place after the rapture, Uh, And that's the time during which God will be working again through the people of Israel. And I see a number of ways in which I believe the stage is being set, the signs are intensifying, uh, that point us toward those days of future prophetic fulfillment that will occur in the tribulation. So can we see those signs of the end times even now in our day? I believe so, Jimmy. Jesus told the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew chapter 16, verse 3, that they were hypocrites. He said, because you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. And certainly there are signs of Christ's second coming. We know that. The Bible talks about signs of his second coming. Again, not the particular aspect of the rapture, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, there aren't any signs for it, but there are signs for Christ's final second coming and for the tribulation. As uh, many have said, these events are so magnificent that they cast their shadows, their shadows fall back in our time. Yes. So whether you want to call them signs or shadows or setting the stage for future prophetic fulfillment, 
I think that's what we're seeing right now, Jimmy. Yes, and there were six of these that you pointed out that are good to focus on. Yeah, there are six areas, as I wrote in an article here called What's Ahead for Israel, six areas where I believe the stage is being set right now so that we can see how it will be in many ways a seamless transition from the world of today to the world of the tribulation. Of course, we're not setting any dates. Mm -hmm. We're not uh, pointing to any specific time that we think this has to occur within. This could go on for some time. The signs could intensify far even beyond Mm -hmm. what we see right now. But it surely doesn't take much imagination to see how we could go from where we are right now to the events of the tribulation with the church in the meantime being taken out at the rapture. Why should everyone be concerned about what's happening in Israel? Well, Jimmy, the Bible tells us in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 5, verse 5, that the Lord God has set Jerusalem in the midst of the nations. Hmm. Uh, Jerusalem is the spiritual and prophetic center of the earth. There's a great old-time dispensational Bible teacher and author, William E. Blackstone, He said, if we want to know our place in chronology, our position in the march of events, look at Israel. And I think that is so true. And the fact is that we might have someone even listening that is less than concerned or less concerned than they should be about the people, the nation, the land of Israel. And we could still say to them, look, what is happening in Israel and what will happen in Israel in the future will tell us what is going to happen in the whole world. So, Jimmy, this is going to involve everyone, whether they want it to be that case or not. The Lord God has put Israel at the very prophetic center of the world. It's going to be the focus of his work in the world once again after the rapture during the days of the tribulation. Yeah, and I would love to have you back, Paul, to talk about each one of these. And there's some great ones here. But Yael mentioned that what happened on October 7th has uh, promoted the Jewish people to turn to God. Now, and do you see a turning back to God in the future for Israel? Certainly, Jimmy, there's going to be a full, complete restoration of Israel in belief to receive her king and his kingdom, Mm. the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And that's really the ultimate purpose of the tribulation. Uh, It's not to chasten the church. The true church will be in heaven with Christ. It won't even be here on the earth at all. But it's to bring Israel to that point of receiving their Messiah, looking on him whom they've pierced and mourning for him, Zechariah 12.10, receiving him in faith, and finally the whole nation as it exists at the end of the tribulation will be saved. And I think the events of October 7th and since, Jimmy, uh, as you reference in your conversation with Yael, it's setting the stage for the time when there will be two Mm. special witnesses, Mm -hmm. two witnesses who will appear on the earth. Uh, In fact, Malachi tells us in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that it's before the great and dreadful day of the Lord that Elijah the prophet will return. I believe he's one of those witnesses along with Moses. And I think that right now the stage is being set for a day when Israel will receive true prophetic revelation that points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as our president, Dr. Jim Showers, just wrote in a letter 
uh, to the Friends of Israel family, saying, quote, in light of recent events in Israel, we are seeing an openness to spiritual conversations, end quote. And that's a wonderful uh, thing that the Lord God is doing in the hearts of Jewish people in the wake of this tremendous catastrophe. Yeah, and let me just add also, Paul, you know, it's not just the Jewish people. And, and yes, this tragedy is softening their hearts to being open to yes. searching for God and, and the Messiah and, you know, opening it up for ministry. But in each of our lives, as we experience, it's not just exclusive to the Jewish people. It could be to each one of us as believers and those around us. And let's pray that God prepares all of us to be ready to give uh, an account for what we believe, a reason why we believe what we believe. And I uh, sure appreciate you. And uh, I'm going to put this, your article on our website, Paul. We're going to have you back to talk about some of these other, where we see satanic delusion, supernatural deliverance, all these things, restoration. I, I think we should have you back to talk more about these issues. Uh, where can people go to find your information, Paul? Thanks so much, Jimmy. I look forward to that. And people can always connect with me at sermonaudio.com slash pscharf. That's P-S-C-H-A-R-F. And of course, they can find so much more about the Friends of Israel at our main website at foi.org. Yes. Very good. Paul, thank you so much for sharing with us. And again, we focus on the Jewish people. I like what you said. You know, God has a program for them, and we focus on the Jewish people because it does indicate where we are on God's timeline for the future. Amen. Thank you, Jimmy. Folks, we've got to take a break. And when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, and he is talking about the prophetic aspect of the book of Daniel right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, great half hour, great interview with Yael. We both remember her when she was small. And uh, now she's very much a part of that next generation that will be bringing the gospel to the Jewish people in the land of Israel. She certainly is, Jimmy, and it is amazing to think as we have been able to be blessed to be involved in a ministry that has had that deep connection with Israel for so many years. If you'd like to support her ministry, you can go to everythingworship.org. That's her personal ministry website. You can see how to support her. And if you'd like to support our ministry, we covet your prayers, uh, most importantly, and we also appreciate your financial support to keep this ministry going. Go to prophecytoday.com. Yes, and uh, we'll try to put a link on our website. A lot of people ask, how can I support Israel? Jerusalem Assembly is, uh, if you just Google that, that's Minnow's church website. And then, of course, Yael, you can help support Friends of Israel. Go to that website, uh, along with Paul Scharf. A lot of the people that we have were just given a voice, uh, as we're all watchmen on the wall. <laughs> I like the way we talked about that last week. Well, our legacy series this week, Rick, I'm excited as we begin our study of the book of Daniel's prophetic passages. Last week, we studied the practical passages in the prophecy of Daniel. Remember, prophecy and practical living go hand in hand. Today, we will look at the four prophetic chapters. Daniel chapter 2 is the times of the Gentiles. Daniel chapter 7, a focus on the Antichrist. 
Daniel chapter 9, the tribulation, and Daniel chapter 11, the alignment of the nations. Remember, the book of Daniel is a timeline for the Gentiles in our world today. This study is a key to understanding how the end of years will play out in God's prophetic program. In order to see the overall scenario of God's plan through the ages, we must see God's plan for the Gentile people as it is given to us in the prophecy of Daniel. Please take your Bible and let's go to Daniel chapter 2 to start today's study with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Let me give you the chapters that are prophetic. And these are the four main prophetic passages. I would jot this down so you can remember it. And the first prophetic passage would be chapter 2. And we're going to look at all of these in just a moment. But chapter 2 will be talking about the Gentile world powers, the times of the Gentiles. I would title chapter 2, The Times of the Gentiles. And this is when it's going to begin. Then the next prophetic passage would be chapter 7. And chapter 7 is going to talk to us about the personality during the times of the Gentiles, at least at the end of those times, the Antichrist. The Antichrist. That's one of 27 names for this world dictator who will be the main driving force during the tribulation period. And that's the third of the prophetic passages. That's chapter 9, talking about the 70th week of Daniel, or that seven-year period of time of judgment upon the face of the earth. Chapter 11 would be the last of the prophetic passages in essence. I'm talking about the key uh, prophetic passages in Daniel's prophecy. And that would be the alignment of nations. But I'm just simply going to look at the first three nations who make a move against Israel as we look at the alignment of nations. We'll continue that because that's a major component in the timeline Uh, for the Jewish people when we look at the book of Ezekiel. And so you have chapter 2, the times of the Gentiles, chapter 7, the appearance of Antichrist, uh, chapter 9, the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel, and chapter 11, uh, at least the beginning stages of the alignment of the nations. Let me tell you, if you're going to study Daniel, you need to study it chronologically. All prophetic passages need to be studied chronologically. I'm going to show you that you cannot even understand. In my opinion, you cannot understand Revelation unless you do it chronologically. And uh, we'll look, Ezekiel is chronologically put together, but Daniel is not chronological. There are 12 chapters in Daniel. Let me tell you how you read the chapters chronologically in the book of Daniel. Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4... Then you skip over to chapters 7 and 8. Then you go back to chapters 5 and 6, and then 9, 10, 11, and 12. I'll give them to you again. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 7, 8, 5, 6, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Now let me show you why I say that is the case. Look at chapter 5, just a moment. Chapter 5, and we'll look at the last verse. Next to the last verse and the last verse. Chapter 5, verse 30. This is the record of the handwriting on the wall when Belshazzar, who I believe was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, has come to power. And he is uh, very arrogant like his grandfather was. 
and he uh, takes the vessels from the temple, uh, the temple in the city of Jerusalem that his granddaddy brought into Babylon, and he uses them in their drunken orgy that takes place that night. They put the wine in the vessels. The Mizrach, for example, which was the vessel used to put the sacrificial blood in. And so the priest could take them out and pour it on the altar. So he uses these vessels. He desecrates them before the Lord. And then the Lord sends in the Medes and the Persians to defeat the Babylonian Empire. Now notice verse 30. In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. And the Medes and the Persians, verse 31, take control of the world. Notice in chapter 5, Belshazzar is slain at the hands of the, Babel, of, of the Medes Persian Empire. Go to chapter 7 now and look at verse 1. Chapter 7 and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now it makes it pretty difficult if the Babylonian Empire has fallen and you've been killed to now come to power for your first year. Go to chapter 8 and verse 1. And notice what it says. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. And so I don't know why when we get to heaven on the way up in the rapture, if you need to ask that question, I'll tell you the answer because I'll know everything at that point in time. I'll have been changed to be like him. I don't know why. All I have to tell you is that's what the text says. I am locked in. I'm disciplined to look and see what the texts say and live by that because that's what I believe for my eternal existence in the heavenlies. So I'm going to do it when I study Bible prophecy as well. So again, chronologically, to check your numbers out, here's how you read the book of Daniel. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 7, 8, 5, 6, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Now let's go to chapter 2 just a moment. In chapter 2, these men, Daniel, Ananias, Hazariah, and Mishael, have qualified to be members of that group of wise men, the council uh, that would be advising Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, they got in there, they are in that leadership role. At this time, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. The dream is very puzzling to him. He does not understand what it's talking about. And so he calls a group of his wise men in. By the way, Daniel and his buddies were not in that group that came in. Nebuchadnezzar told them, I need the interpretation of the dream. And they immediately said, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, give us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. He said, no, 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 no. If you can give me the interpretation, you can give me the dream. Now give me the dream and the interpretation. And they said, no, no, wait a minute, Nebuchadnezzar, nobody's ever done that before. How can we do that? We need to know the dream. We can interpret it. No, no, no. If you have the gift of interpreting, you can tell me what the dream was. And then Nebuchadnezzar looked at him and said something very serious. I'll tell you what, boys. If you don't give me the dream and then the interpretation, I'm going to cut your heads off. You're going to be dead. You won't be any more wise men. I'll have to get another group. And he dismissed them to go figure out what the dream was and the interpretation. Meanwhile, Daniel and his three Baptist buddies... We're having a little prayer meeting. What are we going to do? Wow, we got a crisis here. And Daniel was gifted by God. I'm not going to read all these. It's in the text. Read it. You'll enjoy the time of reading it. It'll be edifying to you. Daniel was gifted by God to interpret the dream. And so he goes in before Nebuchadnezzar to give him the dream and the interpretation of the dream. Look right here in chapter 2. We see he's going to give the dream. Verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, this great image whose brightness was 
excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was awesome, or was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and of clay, and they break them to pieces. Then was the iron and the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken into pieces together, became like the shaft of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away, and no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. There's the dream, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you get that dream? Look up here just a moment. It was the image of a man, head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thigh of brass, legs of iron, ten toes of iron and clay. A stone comes along, hits the image, bursts it up into little pieces, and like the shaft on the threshing floor in the summer, the breeze blew it away, and that stone became a mighty mountain. Notice the stone was cut out without hands. A part of what takes place when the temple is erected. All the stones used in building the previous temples and the next temples to come cannot be cut out with steel by man by hand. They must be cut out by stone. And so this was a part of a forecast or a prophecy of the one who would be that one who becomes the mountain, Jesus Christ the Messiah. The Messiah, Hamashiach, used in chapter 9. The only time in Scripture it's used. The Messiah would come and he would burst this image. Now the interpretation is essential for us to understand what it's talking about. So Daniel's going to interpret it. Verse 36. This is the dream and we will tell the interpretation thereof to the king. Thou, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom. Notice who gives him the kingdom. We get so uptight about the election process here in the United States of America. Folks, read chapter 13 of the book of Romans. Only those that I allow to be in a position of authority are there. Now, I'm not saying we don't exercise our franchise to vote. I'm not saying we don't think that process through. But let's don't get so hyper about it. God's in charge. If we believe that, we can rest in that. And we don't have to get somebody elected so economically America's going to be saved. My Bible still has Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. My God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus the Lord. We get right out there on the edge. The reason we have the president we have today is because 26% of the vote came from the body of Christ because they were concerned about economics. We're at fault for what we have. Let's don't get tight. Look here, Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the world. He wasn't only president of the United States. He was the ruler of the world. And what did Daniel say? God gave you that position. You're there because of that. Verse 38. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given unto thine hand, and hath made thee the ruler over them all, thou art the head of gold. Now he tells us what the head represents in this image of the man, the golden head. It's the Babylonian empire. What he is going to unfold for us here is the times of the Gentiles and the major Gentile world powers who will come to power in our world. In Daniel chapter 2, 
the first of the four prophetic passages in Daniel, we see the prophecy of the times of the Gentiles, as foretold through a dream that the Lord gave King Nebuchadnezzar, a dream which Daniel interpreted for the king. The times of the Gentiles extend from the time that Daniel was taken into the Babylonian captivity all the way through history and then into the seven-year tribulation period on the earth. It will come to a conclusion at the return of Jesus Christ who will destroy the Gentile world powers. We are now living in these times of the Gentiles and quickly approaching the time when Jesus, the stone in Daniel chapter 2, when Jesus returns to earth. Next time, we'll study the rest of Daniel chapter 2 in order to identify the other Gentile world powers and how they will fit into Bible prophecy. This study, as I said, is key to our understanding of the last days. Please join us next week. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Houthi militants in Yemen promise revenge following targeted overnight airstrikes by Western forces. Since November, the Houthis have launched dozens of attacks on tankers traveling through the Red Sea. Trey Hulsey, a consultant to Middle East Ministries, says the conflict makes life increasingly difficult in Yemen. Corruption is widespread, yet hope remains. The body of Christ is not only growing, it's thriving. Ask the Lord to give Christian leaders wisdom to navigate Yemen's complex environment. Meanwhile, December brought a lot of rain to Haiti, and with it, a significant amount of flooding due to the amount of trash littering the streets. For Haiti with Love made it part of their mission to help with cleanup efforts. They also bring food to people at their houses when they aren't able to get to the market due to flooding, spreading the gospel as they do. Pray for strength, wisdom, and courage so believers can continue being the hands and feet of Christ. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic program. Rick, I started off the program by making the statement, Israel is truly God's timepiece of history and prophecy. And I think with our broadcast partners today, Ken Timmerman, uh, and David Dolan, of course, looking at Israel and, and Yael, speaking about a personal experience of hers on that day of October 7th. And, you know, really, I would say it's one of those mileposts in history that, you know, that stands, uh, whether it be the Holocaust or it would be that day 
throughout, and there are many wars, many other mileposts through history. And what Paul Scharf said about looking into the future of what's ahead for Israel. When you look at all these things, it really is very important to keep our eyes focused on the Jewish people. Well, it certainly is, Jimmy. That's something that has been a focus of our ministry. I, I like that idea of the timepiece. It's a way that we can look at what's going on in the world and we can see where we are on God's plan. But, you know, one of the things, and this is something that we do, is we try to provide for the student of prophecy, for the student of theology and eschatology, we try to provide a framework in order for people to understand the Bible. And Jimmy, if you could, go back to basics just a little bit. I mean, there are three major strands of the human race, and if we look at the uh, the Jewish people, and we talk about them often on this program, but there are two other strands. How do these strands work together, and how is the idea or the hermeneutic principle that there are three strands of the human family, how does that principle work when we're studying the Bible? Yes. Well, I mean, you use that big $5 seminary word, (laughs) hermeneutics, and uh, what does that mean? That's the study. Who was the author uh, writing to at the time? Basically, it's who was the author writing to at the time that that passage was written. For the first 2,000 years of human history, there were Gentiles on the earth from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 12. It's the first 2,000 years of human history, only Gentiles. With the call of Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees from Genesis chapter 12 to Acts chapter 1, we have the second strand of the human family, and those are the Jewish people. And remember, those passages in the Bible pertaining to the Jewish people, the promises that God, the covenants that God made with the Jewish people, he has to fulfill them, and that's uh, why and how we figure all that out. Of course, the church came in in Acts chapter 2 and will stay on the earth, I believe, until Revelation chapter 4. So those are the three strands of the human family and their perspective chapters in the Bible, sections as they're broken down. And they really break down into 2,000 years each, 2,000 years for the Gentiles on the earth and then 2,000 years for Jews and Gentiles. And it's been about 2,000 years for Jews, Gentiles, and Christians, Rick. So as we see all of this, and God has written uh, and given us three specific books, Daniel, the Times of the Gentiles, which Dr. Jimmy DeYoungs is teaching from and showing us how to use the prophetic passages in the book of Daniel. Ezekiel is that book that's given to the Jewish people, and the book of Revelation is given to the Christians. And of course, the third of our really what we call the trio of triplets the three strands, the three main prophetic books of the Bible, and then the three main events in the future, beginning with the rapture of the church, the return of Christ to the land of Israel, and to the earth, really, to all of mankind at that time, when he takes back the title deed of the earth uh, and begins his kingdom on this earth that was promised to him in Daniel chapter 2. And then that final event, the great white throne judgment, 
the three next main events. Well, that's great. And that's a foundation. That's a framework on which we are able to build our understanding of what the Bible has to say, not only about prophecy and about eschatology, but about everything. So it's a lens into which we can uh, look at the Bible, and we're not forcing that lens on the Bible. That is what the Bible provides for us to look at. So God has a plan for the Jewish people, and you've mentioned it already, that Christians did not replace the Jewish people, but instead God has a plan for the Jewish people in the future. Can you talk about why we look at what is going to take place in Israel and maybe the idea that, no, the Christians did not replace the Jewish people. God will fulfill the promises that he made to the Jewish people. God's overall prophetic program, be it for Israel, the church, or the Gentile nations, works its way out directly or indirectly through the Jewish people. Too often, believers have attempted to see where they are in God's prophetic program based upon how world events affect their particular country. But the true determination as, as you know, to where we are in history, Rick, is based upon how world events affect Jewish history and the Jewish people. Thus, when the world-shaking events take place, the criteria for their nation to Bible prophecy is not how they affect the church. And, and you know, we can focus on every nation of the world with that, but or any particular Gentile nation, no matter how great and powerful, but how they are affecting Jewish history and the people of Israel. So, Rick, when we look at it, everything revolves around God's plan. And when the rapture of the church takes place and we're taken off of this earth, it will then be God's plan to deal with the Jewish people. They rejected him. He will also deal with the unbelieving Gentiles that are still on the earth. Even at the end of the tribulation period, there are people that are going to still curse God and want to, you know, die without God. So when we look at this in the future, this is how Bible prophecy really promotes us to live a pure and productive holy life. It sure does, Jimmy, and I know our time is short here, but as we focus on the nation of Israel, God, and you said God is going to be dealing with them in the future, well, the world is focusing on the nation of Israel right now, unlike any time in history, and so that certainly should let us know where we stand on God's timeline using Israel, God's timepiece, to let us know what is going on. Yes. Rick, thanks. Great job today. Very important events, world events, that are foreshadowing the future. Uh, the tribulation, we can tell where we are on God's timetable by that shadow that's cast backwards. As R.C. Merle says, Paul Scharf said that today, and we understand it as we look at these signs in the future that are for the Jewish people, by the way. That's a whole different story, but we can understand where we are on God's timetable. Folks, after seeing everything that we're seeing happening in our world today, the rapture of the church could happen at any moment. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.